The following audio drama is rated R for rockin'. You can be sure that everything you wanted to see when you're a teenager is here. Just tantalizingly out of reach if you're under 17 or 18 years old. Hi there, this is Anthony Jones, the co-founder and head writer on Jones and Wolf, which is a monthly audio fiction podcast featuring original music. This is the first episode from our third season called Love in the Time of Talking Exercise Bikes. It's a story that straddles the intersection of love, loss, and exercise equipment. Enjoy. Hello, dear friends, and welcome to Season 3 of Jones and Wolf, a monthly audio fiction podcast featuring original music. We've been gone for a little while, but Joel and I have been working hard, and we can't wait to share with you how our work has grown and evolved over this last year. We're particularly excited about this month's episode, Love in the Time of Talking Exercise Bikes, a story that straddles the intersection of love, loss, and exercise equipment. Joel and I think it's one of our best, and we hope you do too. Enjoy. I'm not trying to brag. But once I started getting really serious about my Olympus scores, I was almost never out of the top 10 on the leaderboard. I'd had the exercise bike for a while before that. I got it around the same time that everyone was getting these things. You know, the time when everyone was stuck at home. But it was mostly just gathering dust in the corner of my studio until, I don't know, I guess I was walking past the mirror one day and happened to catch my reflection and I was like, man, I look old. My hair was thinning out, my shoulders were slouching forward, I had this like little pouch looking thing where my abs used to be. The worst part was, I wasn't even 30. I guess I should also mention that I'd been listening to a lot of podcasts with Dr. Carl Sinclair around then, you know, the immortality guru. And I was like, fuck, if I'm trying to get to 130, I probably need to get on that shit. Start exercising, I mean, eating right, taking fish oil, all that. I even got one of those grinders and a box of plastic capsules and started making my own mushroom pills. Lion's head. It's supposed to give you enhanced mental clarity. Although, I don't know. I import and export sales data for a living into the CRM software that this company I work for uses. And I really couldn't tell you from one day to the next if I was operating with like 10% more mental horsepower or whatever. Most of the time when I'm working, I'm thinking about this reality show I watch. Eye of the Beholder, which is about these random people who get coupled off and have to decide if they want to get married before ever speaking to each other. On top of that, every episode, each couple has to solve a different challenge together without talking, like how to compose an instrumental rock ballad in a recording studio or remodel a kitchen together, and then they get to go back to their rooms and have sex or whatever if they haven't gotten too pissed off at each other. At the end of each week, everyone gets to decide if they want to stay together, leave the show, or swap for a different partner. Then, during the season finale, a few of them normally decide to get married, and the first time they ever speak to each other is when they say, I do. It's an incredible show. I've seen all 15 seasons, and while I'm working, I think a lot about the couples who are the most successful at the challenges and how they're able to communicate without words. And even though it's kind of embarrassing to admit, I spend a fair amount of time fantasizing what I would do if I was on the show and how I would try to compete for my future wife. 
So I guess it's possible that the mushroom capsules are working, and I really do have enhanced mental clarity. But I guess I would need to actually be on the show and test some of my new theories to really prove whether or not I was smarter than before I started taking them. Anyway, if I was really going to be a badass, according to Dr. Sinclair, supplements were only a small part of the equation, and what I was going to need to do was step up my fitness game. Like, big time. And that's when I actually started using the Olympus, even though I'd bought it almost a year before. The first instructor I got hooked on was Sebastian, this super-fit Ecuadorian guy whose whole thing was to create an us-against-the-world mentality that I resisted at first, but eventually came to be really inspired by. Listen to me, he would say, even though of course I was already wrapped. Just remember, when no one else thinks you're worth shit, that I'm the only one still standing here, right by your side. I'm with you, bro. Let's do this. Turn that resistance up to 45. Sebastian and I had nothing in common that I could tell. He was the super intense, gay, punk rock fitness celebrity and I was just some wannabe film esthete who spent most of his time staring at spreadsheets with Eye of the Beholder playing in the background. But it was strange. I found myself feeling more and more connected to him after I was done with my workout. Like Sebastian was someone I actually knew. Not a friend exactly, but someone who moved in an adjacent, slightly better social circle. The kind of guy that the party always followed that I would feel a flutter in my chest if for some reason he decided to include me in a group text with his other, cooler friends. What does Seb do when he's off the bike? I would wonder. What's he doing right now? If I happened to see him at a bar, would he talk to me? Would he want to be my friend? It wasn't until later, after that story in the New York Times came out about how one of the co-founders of the Olympus was pressuring instructors to get prescriptions for Adderall and Ritalin and all other kinds of pharmaceuticals to boost their performance on camera, that the Olympus company went through that major rebrand and got rid of like half their workout team. It happened all of a sudden. One day I was riding with Seb, jotting down notes about the tracks he had chosen for our workout while the sweat dripped off my face, determined to get more current with my musical taste, and then the next. Poof. No more Seb. I remember scrolling through the cycling classes on screen and seeing a bunch of faces I didn't recognize. The closest thing I can compare it to was when my parents moved to Indiana when I was in the 8th grade, and I had to join an entirely different school midway through the year. I remember walking into that new junior high thinking, well, I know this is a school. There are definitely similarities to what I've seen in the past. It's just going to take a while to get used to this. The point, I guess, that I'm trying to make is that I'd grown comfortable with Sebastian and the way things were with the Olympus. And now, all of a sudden, things were similar, but also very different. But like I told you, I was adhering to what Dr. Carl Sinclair preached on his podcast about longevity, and I was committed to doing this fitness thing. So I started scrolling through all the new instructors and classes that had been added, determined to find my new Sebastian. Looking back, if someone had asked me, what do you think is the worst thing that could possibly happen right now, during all that scrolling I was doing, I might have said, well, maybe I don't find any instructors that I particularly like, and it's a little harder to get motivated about working out. I certainly did not think there was any chance I might rediscover the ex-girlfriend who had, like, completely shattered my existence nearly a decade ago, and, you could argue, was at least partly responsible for the state I was in now, living alone, working a job that had nothing to do with film, newly obsessed with preserving my life after feeling like I'd already wasted too much of it. Hiding, I guess. 
maybe still licking my wounds. I don't know. It's complicated. And it's not entirely her fault. I mean, I'll tell you all about it, and then you can judge for yourself. I guess what I'm trying to get at is that my relationship with her was complicated, and that although I'd processed a lot of it, there are always places in one's scar tissue that remain shockingly tender to the touch. Places you don't necessarily remember are even still there, until someone puts their fat finger on it and presses hard enough to make you yelp. And yeah, I wasn't expecting to have to deal with that on the screen of my motherfucking exercise bike. But there she was, Emma Joy. A pseudonym, obviously. And although I tried to lie to myself at first and convince myself that there was no possible way it could actually be her, the more classes I saw featuring Emma Joy, the more I started to tremble. She looked different, sure, but the realization was starting to force its way through my defenses, that here she was, the woman I'd more or less designed my life around forgetting for the last half decade, now hanging out in exactly the same place where my buddy Seb and I had made all our best memories. I tapped the thumbnail of her picture, and sure enough, it was Simone, which was her actual name. My on-again, off-again girlfriend from college, and to put it simply, and sum up four years of ecstasy and bone-rattling despair into a single phrase, the one who got away. What's up, Olympus? She said as soon as I tapped her 45-minute boot camp booty bump hill ride. Are you ready for the first day of the rest of your life? And I'm not kidding you. If my feet hadn't been clipped into the pedals with those special cycling shoes they make you buy to use the Olympus, I would have fallen off the exercise bike and landed flat on my face. God, where to start? I could tell you how I met Simone during our college orientation. How I saw her sitting on the corner of a fuzzy dorm couch, gazing out at palm trees in the rain, comfortable being quiet in a crowded room, looking so beautiful that just the sight of her put a goddamn knife right through my chest. I mean that seriously. It hurt to look at her, with her uneven bangs and just a hint of too much mascara, enough to suggest to my 18-year-old self that she was different from all these other mostly blonde girls I'd seen on campus, who seemed like they'd come to college in Los Angeles for the perpetual sunshine and occasional celebrity sighting. Simone's angst at that age was somehow more mature, more deeply interesting to me than anyone I'd ever seen before. I don't know. Maybe we were just both depressed in the same dramatic, artsy sort of way. Or maybe we subconsciously resembled each other's parents and there was some Oedipal thing going on. Whatever it was, when we made eye contact, there was this profound sense of recognition between us, I think, that we'd not only met before, but had spent entire lifetimes together. Like we were two aliens that had been forced into exile from our native planet with only fragments of our memories left intact, and that somehow, through chance, we'd been able to find each other through the cosmos, and the moment we saw one another, our collective memories came flooding back, not only of our own lives, but of our entire lost civilization. What I'm trying to say, I guess, is that it was love at first sight, and that moment will forever be burned into my memory, because we connected in a way that was both sudden and profound, and looking back, maybe only possible when two people are young and stupid, and don't yet know all the subtle flavors of disappointment, and the myriad ways that the best laid plans can go horribly awry. I remember we ate psilocybin mushrooms together on our second date, and walked around the sculpture garden on campus after midnight. I was worried at first that I'd made a terrible mistake, getting so incredibly high with someone I barely knew, 
But just as the sky started to soften and pulsate with all the oily swirls of a Van Gogh painting, Simone took my hand and put it against her cheek and looked up at me with this, like, tragically beautiful smile and said, We're about to go through something serious, aren't we? And I don't remember. I think I might have nodded and tried to smile with all the fake confidence of my 18-year-old self. But Simone was already tripping balls by then and looking through to the back of my skull, where the real me, the secret, insecure part that I'd fooled myself into believing I'd left back in my hometown, where the other kids who'd grown up with fathers who still farmed looked at me and muttered, queer, or left swastikas scrawled on scraps of binder paper in my locker. Memories that when I moved to Los Angeles for college, I tried to bury or burn up, but never quite could, so that they still lived not so far beneath the surface and made the world a deeply frightening place for me. And the fact that Simone was looking at me, the real me, the scared me, and not running away to go be with someone else, turned what could have been the beginning of a very bad trip into an utterly amazing one. Promise to help me through this? She said, squeezing my hand even harder. Totally, I said. Being in a serious relationship in college isn't easy. Navigating monogamy is always hard, I guess, but it's especially difficult in the midst of frat parties, binge drinking, and your friends hooking up all around you. I think in the beginning, Simone's drive made it easier for us to be together. She always knew she was going to be an actress. It had been her focus since she was like nine years old. She'd been the local star at her high school in Charlottesville, one of the only people from that region of the country that made it into the theater department at our school. And then all of a sudden, as a freshman, she was starring in plays that normally featured seniors. It kept her focused, all the auditions, a constant judgment, but it also left her frazzled at times, nervous, constantly on the border between ecstasy and severe depression. I enjoyed riding the roller coaster with her, to be totally honest. It was fun, all the drama, the massive mood shifts. There was always something happening when I was with Simone, something big. Like when she heard whispers that a national casting agency had asked the department head about her, and she wanted to drop out of school and move to New York City right then and there, convinced she was on the verge of making it big. Or the time when she wouldn't leave her bedroom for an entire weekend because one of the other theater kids started a rumor that she'd gotten the lead role in an upcoming musical by blowing one of their professors during his office hours. And all she wanted to do after that was take Oxycontin and listen to the Grateful Dead. Whatever happened, I was there, ready to ride out the storm. It wasn't like it was a chore either. Like I said, I enjoyed it. Looking back, I was more than happy to let Simone's life fill up the empty space in my own because I didn't have a clue what I was doing or what my goals should be. I was an English lit major. The only subjects I had opinions on were pointless things like art and poetry. And even then, nothing I felt strong enough to really argue about with anyone. I was just hanging out for the most part. I spent a lot of time watching the Criterion Collection in the film library. I made $1,000 playing online poker one semester. I was high all the time. Simone, my parents, the occasional TA pressed me to get interested in something, to make a plan for my life after graduation, to seek out my true passion, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I don't know, what can I say? I like my life. My relationship with Simone was my passion. Maybe that sounds pathetic, I don't know, but it was the truth. 
Looking back, I think that might have been the happiest I've ever been. One moment stands out in particular from college that I can tell you about. Simone was playing the female lead in her cohort's production of Hair, the musical, and I was in attendance for the dress rehearsal. By that point, she was really in her head about those nasty blowjob rumors that had spread through the theater department, and I could tell before the show even started that she wasn't her normal, focused self on stage. I don't know if you've ever seen Hair, or how well you remember the musical if you have, but the first act starts with Sheila, the female lead who Simone was playing, cutting off a lock of the main guy's hair. That main guy's name is Claude. Anyway, the actor playing Claude was wearing a wig, of course, but Simone was so off during that dress rehearsal that she stumbled over her feet a little bit while she was moving in to cut a piece of hair off his wig. And well, she accidentally stabbed poor Claude in the head with her scissors. It wasn't terrible, but it was enough to make the guy cry out in pain and he rushed off the stage and the curtain went down and the last thing I remember was seeing Simone frozen on stage, wide-eyed and pale and trembling. There were murmurs in the crowd, of course, nervous laughter, lots of jokes, mostly at Simone's expense, and then a stage manager came out and told us that everything was okay, it was just a flesh wound, and they would begin again shortly, which they did about 15 minutes later with all the same actors, even Claude, who was a great sport about the whole thing. They even poked fun at themselves during the opening scene, and Simone made a big show out of only cutting the teeniest, tiniest bit of Claude's wig, and everyone had a big laugh. And honestly, it wasn't a bad performance at all, given how things had started. But I knew Simone better than anyone back then, and as much of a perfectionist as she was, I knew how bad her self-loathing could get and all the ways in which she would punish herself for the mistakes she'd made. I think that's why I clapped as hard as I did once they were finished. It was all for Simone, obviously. I just wanted her to know how excellent she was, that her mistakes didn't matter, even if there were people around her who celebrated when she stumbled. I wanted her to know that those types of people were irrelevant, that none of them could ever touch the wellspring of her creative spirit and that she had been able to transcend all the negativity and bitterness that night with her performance, which I thought was brilliant. It probably would have been better if I could have just told her all that, but I was 19 years old and unable to really communicate intense emotions like that very well. So instead of trying to verbalize all those feelings, I just stood up and made as much noise for her as I possibly could. I actually wound up clapping so hard that night that I sprained my wrist and had to wear a brace for the rest of the semester. It was worth it, of course. I never regretted doing it, not even once. Later that night, Simone was curled up against me on her futon, wearing one of my big hooded sweatshirts that she'd claimed long ago as her own, barely peeking out at the television screen from behind my shoulder. We were watching The Searchers. I was going through a huge John Ford kick back then, and I particularly enjoyed The Searchers because it showed all these amazing Utah landscapes in a way only John Ford could. It was Ford's best film, I thought, second only to his adaptation of The Grapes of Wrath. But The Searchers had the advantage of being shot in all the saturated gloriousness of Technicolor. I fucking love Technicolor. I always have and I always will. That's what I see when I eat psilocybin mushrooms, by the way. The psychedelics turn the world into technicolor. It's incredible. I wish movies were shot today in technicolor. I'm still waiting for that to make a comeback. 
Anyway, what I'm trying to say is that night was the moment I knew Simone was the one. For real. Because after I thought she had fallen asleep, she surprised me by peeking her nose out from the top of my sweatshirt and said, I want to live the rest of my life in a technicolor paradise. I turned around and looked at her. Her pupils were the size of small moons floating in the expanse of all that cosmic beauty. And I'm telling you, my heart could have exploded in my chest right then and there. Because I think somewhere I knew deep down that I would never be happier than I was with her on that couch. Totally. I finally managed to say. Although what I really wanted to tell her, but was too scared to, was that I wanted to live the rest of my life any fucking place. I didn't much care where, as long as it was with her. What can I say about what happened next? We moved to New York together after graduation, as planned, into a little 450 square foot studio with half a wall that allowed us to lie to ourselves and call it a one bedroom. She started going on auditions, and I spent most of my time writing film criticism on the internet that no one ever read. We commiserated together. We laughed about the rejections, the lack of callbacks, the single-digit visits to my blog. We joined a grocery co-op. We ate fresh vegetables. We learned to cook some things. We made new friends, other struggling artists. We drank cheap wine and smoked pot together. We had the best sex of our lives. We were young adults, luxuriating in the gloriousness of our hipster dreams. It was an amazing six months. Then Simone signed with an agent. She started getting callbacks. We were ecstatic in the beginning, both of us. It was really happening for her. We actually bought a bottle of champagne to celebrate and opened it on our roof, sending the cork flying off in the direction of the Manhattan skyline. I started a newsletter about indie movies that no one except my friends and family subscribed to. I put a ton of work into it. I was convinced I could gain a readership through sheer effort and force of will, then maybe parlay that into a film writing job at some hip Brooklyn magazine. I envisioned a reality for Simone and I, both at the top of our respective fields. It seemed so attainable back then. We were going to have the life we both wanted. I truly believe that. Simone started getting real work. She starred in her first commercial a coveted holiday spot for a national mail delivery service. I remember watching the debut, seeing Simone on screen with her family of actors, opening recently delivered presents under a Christmas tree, smiling like she was the happiest person in the world. That same week, I had zero new subscribers to my newsletter. I hated myself for how sad that made me, how much of a bummer I was to be around. Believe me, I really truly wanted to be happier for Simone, but the depression had really started to set in around then, about how little people seemed to value my writing. And when I watched her commercial, even though I didn't say anything, it disturbed me. Seeing her on screen like that with an entirely different life, it was a little too convincing, a little too obvious that a world could exist that easily for her without me in it. We would go to parties together, Simone would mingle, energized by the crowd, all the interesting, successful people who were so unlike the kids we'd gone to college with. It was the happiest I'd ever seen her. But New York wasn't having nearly the same stimulating effect on me that it was on her. I didn't understand the city, the complex social rules it functioned on, 
The way people looked at you, sizing you up with a cursory glance, assessing whether or not there was something worth trying to get out of you. It mostly just made me sad that people acted the way they did, that I had nothing really to offer them. Simone would introduce me to people who were suddenly in her orbit, minor celebrities, DJs, musicians on tour. This is my boyfriend, she would say. He's a writer. And I would smile and add, unfortunately, or make some other self-deprecating remark, and everyone would laugh politely. But deep down, I would scoff and silently think of myself as being the biggest fraud in the world. So, to put it simply, a year into our New York adventure, Simone found herself riding the dopamine waves of early adult success, whereas I took up increasing amounts of our communal emotional airspace with my depression and complaints. I would still plan date nights for us, cook meals, buy tickets for museum exhibits I thought she might like, and curate movie lists for us to go through. But increasingly, Simone had other plans. And increasingly, those plans didn't include me. If it all seems obvious now, the trajectory we were on, believe me, it wasn't clear at all to me what was happening at the time. Chalk it up to the naivete of youth, or the unshakable belief I had that our relationship wasn't bound by time or temporary setbacks, that our future marriage was all but inevitable, that we were going to experience the joy not only of our own children, but of our children's children. And I don't know, when you're looking that far ahead, maybe you're more likely to miss what would otherwise be obvious to anyone else who is paying attention to the here and now. One night stands out in particular to me now. A night when we went to a martini bar in Midtown where they had an open mic for stand-up comics. As was usual for me back then, I got far too drunk. But then I did something out of character for me at the time. I insisted that I go up and find out whether or not I had any natural comedic talent. Please don't. Simone begged me. But I was already on my way to this stage, fueled by a half-cocked fantasy that the only way I'd get Simone's respect back is if I had some performative success of my own, as well as the memory of a Lenny Bruce biopic I'd recently seen, the one with Dustin Hoffman, and the drunken certitude it gave me that all it took to be a successful comedian was emotional vulnerability and the willingness to insult all that you held dear. Needless to say, it was an utter dumpster fire of a situation that I wound up creating that night. I got some laughs from the other drunks sitting at the bar in the beginning. I think because they knew better than most how sloshed I really was. But it wasn't until I started in on an improvised rant about what it was like to be in a relationship with an actress that I went from a drunken moron making an ass out of himself to something far worse. Looking back, I should have sensed the moment when I crossed the Rubicon, when the few people who had been paying attention got totally quiet. Sensing, I think, the shockwaves radiating out from Simone and realizing that what they were witnessing was not an amateur comic, but someone who decided to pour gasoline over his personal life and light it on fire in front of a group of strangers. You want to know the best thing about dating an actress? I said at one point. And remember, please, I was hammered, hammered drunk. It's great preparation for having a baby. Because when you date an actress, your job is to dry their tears and, like, take care of them and all you get in return is a bunch of shit. Actresses save all the good stuff, all the charm and charisma for people they want to impress. 
when you're the college boyfriend. They don't want to impress you anymore. They already did that. They're on the lookout for a new audience. That's who they care about now. All the mysterious, wonderful strangers out there waiting to give them their applause. I realize how stupid it all sounds now, but there was a part of me that night that thought she would appreciate the creativity, the fact that I was getting outside of my comfort zone and my attempt at being edgy. Although if I'm being honest, I didn't even get the idea until I was five martinis in, which probably should have been a clue as to how good of a strategy it really was. There were definitely things on my mind though, fears I had about Simone and how absent she'd been for the last few months, insecurities over how clingy I'd become and doubts I had about our future. Obviously, an improvised comedy set at an open mic was not the best way to communicate those things. In fact, I think it's safe to say that it was the absolute worst way I could have gone about it. It's not my fault you're not going anywhere as a writer. Simone said after we left the bar. That was it. That's all she said. We rode the subway home in silence after that. I think we both knew that a line had been crossed, that we'd entered into a new and different part of our lives where the intimate bond we'd once taken so much collective security in, the same bond which had been taking such a beating from the moment we set foot in New York, had finally been broken. And even though we stayed together for another couple months after that infamous open mic, I noticed that Simone began looking at me radically different, treating me for the first time like I was a liability. Like maybe the next time I got too drunk and did some wild shit, would be at a party where there were people around that she wanted to impress. People in the industry. People that mattered. I get it, of course. People in relationships grow apart. And maybe this is just my own delusion, but I don't think that's what happened with us. I think the pressure of living in a place like New York, of Simone suddenly sensing that she was within spitting distance of her wildest dreams, and me feeling like her life was skyrocketing so far past mine that all I could do was sit there and watch the exhaust from her jet fuel slowly evaporate in the sky. It just broke us. We couldn't talk about it in a meaningful way. We never really even tried to address what was going on between us. I don't think we really understood it. We were still too young to accept the fact that long-term relationships were seriously hard work. That life wasn't just a series of magic tricks and trophies and triumphant moments celebrated with endless bottles of champagne. I don't really like to talk about what happened after we broke up. I'll just say it took me a very long time to get over it. And although I was completely wrecked by the whole thing and just utterly heartbroken, I only called Simone once during that period in time. And even then, only after I drunk half a bottle of gin at a speakeasy in Red Hook. I remember standing outside next to the edge of the water out there, and my heart just pounding once the phone started ringing, because I had no idea what I was going to say. And then, all of a sudden, for some reason my mind went back to college, to that night when she accidentally stabbed her co-star in the head with those scissors, but then managed to pull it together, when I nearly broke my wrist clapping for her. What about the Technicolor paradise we were supposed to build together? I said on her voicemail. I said the same thing about ten more times before I hung up the phone and promised myself I wouldn't call her anymore, which to my credit, I never did again. I followed Simone's career for a while after we broke up, and I'll admit, I relished that her opportunities seemed to be worse and worse every time I looked. There was a television show about biker gangs that she had a reoccurring part in that got canceled after one season, a role in an indie film about street dancers in New York that got panned by the critics, 
and then fewer and fewer commercials, until finally, mercifully, I no longer had to worry about seeing her unexpectedly when I opened my laptop or turned on the TV. Years went by. I moved to Denver. I gave up writing. I took some online courses. I got certified in a very popular CRM software. I got a good paying job. I saw my reflection one day. I got tremendously afraid of my own mortality. I became obsessed with longevity podcasts. I saw a commercial for the Olympus exercise bike. I bought one. I connected with Sebastian, the first instructor who got me really into using the bike. Then one day, like I told you already, Seb and a bunch of the old Olympus trainers were gone and a new instructor caught my eye who went by the name of Emma Joy, but I knew who she really was because that instructor was actually Simone. You are a fucking warrior goddess. Simone tells me now when I take one of her classes during the really, really tough parts of an Olympus ride, when the resistance gets set to 60 and I'm expected to maintain the same output despite that being ball-clinchingly difficult. Do not give up. I know who you really are deep down. You were built for challenges like this. Her lips were always bright red now. I couldn't tell for sure, but it looked like she might have had them injected with Botox to make them larger, fuller, more noticeable on screen. She also looked like she might have had some breast reconstruction work done. Her breasts were so much rounder than I remembered, but that might just have been the result of the Olympus-branded sports bra tops that she wore now. She was certainly fitter than I'd ever seen her. Simone was always in good shape, don't get me wrong but now she had the ripped look of somebody who regularly measured their body fat percentage, and no matter how low it got, was always slightly disappointed with what they saw. What I'm trying to say is that despite all the smiling she did on screen, and all the enthusiasm she showed in her classes, Simone looked sad in a way that I was intimately familiar with. She'd been beating herself up a lot, I could tell. I knew what her inner critic did to her when she unleashed it, I could see the worn-down look in her eyes. I might have been one of the only people in the world who could read between the lines with her like that. Anyway, it wasn't a bad gig, the instructing, I mean. I'd read that Olympus instructors got paid pretty well. There were opportunities for brand partnerships. It wasn't acting, obviously, which had always been her true love and her passion and her dream. But it wasn't working as a barista, either. I surprised myself in the beginning taking as many of her classes as I did. You have to understand, I'd spent years doing everything earthly possible to avoid anything that even remotely reminded me of Simone. There was a particular brand of sea salt and vinegar kettle chips that she used to love, for instance, a snack I used to buy for her all the time. And after we broke up, I'm telling you, I wouldn't even walk down the snack aisle in supermarkets for fear of catching a glimpse of those blue bags, because just the sight of them would send me right back to our old living room, with her lounging on the couch, licking the sea salt off her lips, looking over her shoulder at me with this little guilty smile which just used to melt my heart, her looking at me like that I mean, and to know that I'd never be able to share moments like that with her again. Well, it was just easier to avoid looking at potato chips than have to deal with that. But now, all of a sudden, I was seeing her every day, watching her glisten with sweat, listening to her little motivational speeches between hill climbs. I was expecting to be bothered by the sight of her, but it wasn't at all like I expected. 
Seeing her on screen was more like spending time with an old friend than anything else. It was comforting in a way that really shocked me. It was like going to visit someone who knows you so well and cares about you so much that just sitting around them in silence leaves you feeling comfortable and relaxed. The emotional equivalent of wrapping yourself in a soft old quilt in front of a crackling fire on a deliciously cold winter night. I never would have thought that I would get a feeling like that from the Olympus. Plus, the truth was, they were some of the best workouts of my life. I happened to catch my reflection in the mirror around then, and for the first time in a while, I actually liked what I saw. My stomach had flattened out, the bags under my eyes had disappeared, my butt looked great, and after spending so much time at home behind a computer screen for God knows how long, I had this sudden and powerful urge to burst out, feeling like a firework streaking through the night sky all of a sudden, about to explode in a million colored bits. And honestly, I had the Olympus to thank for that. That feeling, I mean, of rejuvenation. I guess what I'm trying to say is that finally, maybe for the first time since I'd moved away from New York, I wanted to be seen. And so, during the second month of taking Simone's classes every day, I got this crazy idea. You see, Olympus has this thing they do for their users. Different ways of acknowledging people for their commitment to the product. Once you reach 100 classes, for instance, they award you with a badge for their Century Club. An instructor might even give you a shout-out during a live class if you happen to time it right. But the truth was, there were plenty of Century Club members, and there was no guarantee that you'd be elevated above the pack for that brief, glorious moment of recognition by an instructor just for getting one of those badges. The Platinum Club, though, a thousand rides, was an entirely different story. According to the message boards, the average Olympus user has a 92.9% chance of getting a live shout-out when they make it to the Platinum Club during a class. But the best chance anyone had of being seen and acknowledged by an instructor was when you layered your achievements. Reaching a major workout milestone on your birthday, for example. And it just so happened that when I realized how badly I wanted to be seen by Simone for all the hours I'd been putting in on the Olympus, and to be acknowledged by her for the tremendous amount of work I'd done to turn my life around in the last year, my birthday was exactly 30 days away, and I was 372 rides short of my platinum goal. To put things in perspective, I normally averaged one, maybe two classes per day. In order to hit a thousand rides by my birthday, I was going to have to average slightly more than 12 rides per day, which was totally insane. But whereas at other points in my life when I might have never even attempted something that bold, this time I was actually excited for the challenge. And so for the next month, I took it to an entirely different level. Three sessions a day with active recovery in between to make sure I didn't rupture a hamstring or get so tight that I permanently folded into a little ball every time I sat down to sip a protein shake or check one of the discussion boards I was following on my dual monitor setup for tips on how to rise above the crowd on an Olympus leaderboard. Even though I barely left my apartment during that time, I was constantly in motion, pedaling, stretching, and then posing in front of the mirror to keep myself motivated. I know it probably sounds ridiculous, but I felt like a professional athlete getting ready for the championship game in my sport. Halfway through the month, I was in a groove. I was on target, I wasn't making any mistakes, and for the first time, I don't know, maybe ever, I felt like I was actually operating at my full potential. I 
woke up every day looking forward to the grueling routine I was about to put myself through. The feeling of working incrementally towards an incredibly challenging goal, combined with all the cardio endorphins and the sight of Simone cheering me on and all those different, amazing, brightly colored workout outfits she wore, was just incredibly intoxicating. For a while, I rode in a state of pure bliss, immersed entirely in the moment, captivated by what I was chasing, totally losing all sense of time. And then, one morning I woke up with a searing pain in one of my knees. I'm just a little sore, I thought, hobbling over to the Olympus, clipping in and starting another ride. This is nothing. I'll loosen up after a few minutes. But the pain, unfortunately, just got worse. It got so bad, in fact, that I could barely walk from the Olympus back to my dual monitor setup to schedule a telehealth appointment. I just sat there for a moment and felt like crying. Ultimately, I didn't even make an appointment. What was the doctor going to tell me? That my knee was fucked? I already knew that. I opened my phone. I looked at my Olympus profile. I was one week away from my birthday and 20 classes short of my Platinum Club goal. I was so close to Simone, and yet once again, it felt like the universe had reached out and ripped me away from her. That's when the negativity really started to set in again. This is the most pathetic thing you've ever done, I thought to myself at one point. You've injured yourself, you're jeopardizing your relationship with your manager at work by spending so much time and energy on the bike instead of your actual job, and how you can barely walk. For what? To impress a girl who dumped you five years ago? What are you doing, man? What's the point of all this? My internal narrative was like that for the rest of the day. I just kept saying those things over and over, berating myself, asking why, why, why was I doing this in the first place? Even though I knew what the answer was, it had been crystal clear for me the second I'd seen Simone on my Olympus screen. I told you once, I don't like to talk about what happened when Simone and I broke up, but the truth was the weeks and the months after she moved out of our apartment were some of the darkest moments of my entire life. It wasn't just that we'd broken up, that my soon-to-be-famous girlfriend had dumped me at a moment when I was feeling like a complete and utter failure in life. It was this unshakable feeling I had at the time that we'd just totally fucked up something beautiful and lost each other to the vicious randomness of the universe like we'd been torn apart by a chaotic ocean from the raft we were clinging to together, unable to protect each other from the storm. It was a feeling that we'd let something sacred slip away, simply because we hadn't known any better, and we weren't able to realize how important we were to each other until it was far too late. Of course, if I'm being completely honest, there was also the realization that my relationship with Simone had been a crutch for me for far too long that I allowed my identity to become anchored in her life, her journey, her ups and downs, and all the emotions that went into that to such an extreme degree that when she left me, I became totally unmoored, feeling like the ground beneath me had suddenly crumbled and that I wasn't standing anymore, but falling. So there were aspects of our relationship that were just totally unhealthy and unfair to both her and me. What I learned ultimately is that no single human should occupy that much importance in another person's life, and that in order to be in a successful adult relationship, that I was going to have to do a lot of work to repair all those dusty, broken, cobweb parts of my ego that I had been relying on Simone for, instead of looking inward and developing myself. 
but all those realizations would come years later. At the time when Simone broke up with me, all I knew was the pain, the desperate, gnawing physical pain that I imagine a heroin junkie must go through trying to quit cold turkey. And so believe me, I hate talking about this, but one night after drinking like 12 beers in this dive bar I used to go to all the time near the park, I just closed my eyes and walked into traffic on Eastern Parkway, which is a really busy street for those of you out there who have never been to Brooklyn, a street where cars drive pretty goddamn fast. I woke up in the hospital, broken arm, a couple fractured ribs, a pretty bad concussion. I was alive though, which to be completely honest, wasn't what I was expecting. My parents flew out from Indiana the next day. We had a lot of really hard conversations as a family in the days and weeks that followed. I quit drinking. I spent a lot of time in therapy. I went to AA meetings anytime I felt the self-destructive urge. And you know, it took me a few years, but I managed to rebuild my life piece by piece. And the end result may not have been the most exciting existence in the entire world. Believe me, I'm aware of that, but it was something I was proud of. Really proud of, if I'm being completely honest. So although I knew better than most what it felt like to surrender to the negativity, I also knew what it meant to work through it. And in this case, with this awful knee injury I had all of a sudden, I just decided to hell with it. It wasn't going to stop me. Because the truth was, I had to prove my vitality. I had to reach my goal, however silly it might seem. And Simone had to see it. She just did. And so, even though I could no longer walk to the Olympus in the morning, I hopped or crawled and then I bit down on my lip and I started pedaling until the adrenaline dulled the pain enough for me to settle into another class. And another. And another. Until I was at 999 the day before my birthday because fuck it, man. I was a primal force. I was a motherfucking phoenix rising from the ashes of my past to show everyone for at least one brilliant moment that I held within me an energy so bright, so utterly incandescent that you better put on sunglasses to look at or watch out, baby, because you try to see me without them and you're definitely going blind. The night before my birthday, I couldn't sleep. My knee was throbbing for one. I'd taken almost 10 ibuprofens, but I could still feel it pulsing with whatever the hell was wrong with it. I didn't want to know how bad it was. I was saving that trip to the doctor until after all this insanity was over and done with. The other thing that kept me up that night, though, was a thought I had about my Olympus screen name. My plan had just been to go with my actual name, to make 100% sure that Simone knew it was me pedaling to the top of that virtual mountaintop. But I had this sudden urge to change it, and so I limped over to my bike and signed in and typed it out one letter at a time. Technicolor Paradise. It just made sense to me on this deep level that felt so suddenly right that I trusted it. Maybe it was the bright outfit she wore for her classes or the fact that now I was existing with her only through a screen. But lying in bed that night, I had the realization that this was the closest we were ever going to get to that saturated color palette we'd loved so much in The Searchers that night we watched it in college. That psychedelic dream we'd once shared. I mean, this was it. This was the world we lived in. This was our Technicolor paradise. The day I joined the Olympus Platinum Club was by far the best ride I'd ever taken on the bike. It was this feeling that maybe Lance Armstrong used to have on the final day of the Tour de France, when he knew for sure that he'd actually done it. He'd won the damn thing. A feeling of being totally outside your body, 
a floating above your corporeal self, existing somewhere between dimensions, with one foot in the living world and the other with the dead, communing with some ancient energy only experienced by those who push themselves ludicrously far beyond their physical limits and then get rewarded for it. I honestly didn't check the leaderboard once during that ride. I didn't need to. I knew I was at the top. I've never been so certain of something before or since. And Simone? Well, she just confirmed the obvious when she started scrolling through her list of shoutouts for that day. Wow! She said, mopping sweat off her forehead with a neon purple towel. This is something I don't think I've ever seen before. We have a rider here, currently atop the leaderboard, who not only has a birthday today, but has officially entered the Platinum Club. Incredible, amazing work, and a massive shout out to Techni- But she couldn't finish the word. And that's when my consciousness rushed suddenly back into my body, and I stared directly at her on screen. Simone stopped pedaling, and just stared back at me in the camera. The facade of her performance was gone in that moment. Her big smile, all that fake enthusiasm, it just vanished. There was no more Emma Joy. All that was left was Simone. Simone as I always remembered her. A little puzzled, a little mysterious, a little half smile curling along the side of her lips. It was the same look I'd seen when we first saw each other across the room during our freshman orientation in college and fallen in love at first sight, when there was no one else in the entire universe except her and I, and a lifetime full of adventures awaiting us. And even though my knee was absolutely shredded, and there were tears streaming down my face from the pain, I smiled and let out a howl of joy, because I knew, I knew that Simone had really seen me, and that we'd actually connected through the screen. Love and the Time of Talking Exercise Bikes was written by me, Anthony Jones. It was narrated by myself and Elizabeth Weingarten. The music, as always, was done by Joel Wolf. If you enjoyed this story, take a moment and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts, or share it with a friend. If you're a fellow writer or musician, we'd love to hear what you thought about this episode. You can reach us at jonesandwolf at gmail.com. That's J-O-N-E-S-A-N-D-W-O-O-L-F at gmail.com. Joel and I will be back next month with another story. Until then, my friends, thanks for listening.